hold your breath just for a moment. <laughs> I could smell the uranium on it as you lean towards it. <laughs> Self General Finance, 245, 500 from Lawrence, right? Now ends at I 352. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Nineteen eighty-seven, and we were watching Good Morning Vietnam at the movies. David Longy was Prime Minister. Kylie Minogue was singing about being lucky in love. There was an actor in the White House. Stock markets around the world were about to crash and the cartoon series The Simpsons was making its television debut. But what really mattered to New Zealanders was that in sporting terms, we were on top of the world. The game is all over. And the All Blacks have won this match against the French by 29 points to 9. And the All Blacks become the first holders of the William Webb Ellis Trophy, the Rugby World Cup. They are supreme in world rugby. The All Blacks had beaten France in the final of the inaugural Rugby World Cup at Eden Park in Auckland, and the Silver Ferns had beaten a feisty Trinidad and Tobago in the netball wasteland of Glasgow. Fast forward to 2007 and the respective holy grails of rugby, netball and cricket are or have been up for grabs in the space of seven months. But for the players wearing the silver fern today, the sporting landscape has changed dramatically, with the intervening years treating each of the sports quite differently. The rugby player who was surreptitiously left a little cash in his boot to supplement his day job is now earning $200,000 to play test rugby. The netballer who struggled to be taken seriously is now regarded as a high-performance athlete, and the mild-mannered cricketer is now telling all on the cover of women's magazines. But the ambitions of those wearing the silver fern remain the same. The coach of the 1987 world champion rugby side was former All Blacks captain Sir Brian Lahore, who's now an All Blacks selector. Oh, there was there was builders, there was uh, farmers. Um yeah, there was a, a, a wide range of occupations, and uh, they had, you know, they they had a full day to, day's work to put in, which they did. And uh, what they did after was the, that that was their sacrifice, really. And they knew they'd put in a lot of sacrifice, so they they wanted that cup more than probably a lot of the other teams. One of the key things that happened in '87 was that we we uh, targeted 50 players. We never ever announced who they were, and none of them knew who they were. But we told them that, that they had to have a, a, a training program or fitness program, which we gave them individually. And they themselves did that work uh, from you know, the middle of December right through until we got together you know, prior to the World Cup. So they went out and, and they trained themselves. They were the ones who, who pushed it themselves, and, and that was, I think, a, a masterstroke looking back because it was their energy that had gone into getting themselves in the best shape possible. That would have obviously required a fair bit of self-discipline. Self-discipline was enormous, whereas nowadays um, all the guys have professional trainers around them. Uh, sure, we're trying to make them become more self-reliant, and, and I think they've come a long way. But that was, I think, a masterstroke as far as we're concerned in 87. 
no issue here. Ain't I tell you? Again, the dive bombing Cessna. Smoke bombs right into the middle of the All Blacks. One of them's gone down. Gary Knight, taken right in the head by one of those packets of flour. Flattened. In 1987, rugby was still recovering from the repercussions of the 1981 Springbok Tour and the 1986 Cavaliers Rebel Tour of South Africa. We'd gone through a very difficult period in the 80s, like right from 81. It had been extremely difficult for anyone who played for the All Blacks. You had half of New Zealand that supported you and the other half hated you. And so we went into the World Cup with you know, that sort of background. So we had to change that. We had to make them proud of being an All Black. Like none of the guys would walk down to town with anything on that identified them as an All Black. So we had to bring some pride into the side. We had to make them proud of who they were. We had to, to you couldn't go and ask New Zealanders for support. You had to sort of gather their support by the way you presented yourself, the way you played the game. And that first game against Italy helped us in the North. The All Blacks are running at Kerwin, gets it from Fox. He's running it straight up the 22, up to the 10 metre mark. No tackles made. Kerwin, 10 metre mark, Italy. Full back to beat. Kerwin, has he got the steam? He has. Brilliant. 80 metre try from John Kerwin. All of a sudden, the New Zealand public saw an All Black team that was playing very attractive rugby, wanted to be out there, they were, they were excited about being an All Black and, and they wanted to do something really special for New Zealand. So as the tournament progressed, they got more confident about the, the people out there and, and at the end of the tournament, they were quite happy to walk down the street with, with, it, with an All Black jersey on, you know, a, a casual jersey on or, or some form of identification. So that was something that was major in that tournament for us. We were able to turn around a lot of the, 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 the rugby haters. Did you feel that going into the tournament? Because, I mean, obviously you had the Cavaliers to it just before that. I felt that we had a problem, that, that to win that tournament in, in 87, we had to get the, the bulk of New Zealanders behind us, which we hadn't had. We were never going to win it if, if half of New Zealand didn't want us to win, because it... You know, players, they, they pick up those vibes. And really by the time we got to the, to the, to the final, um, nothing was going to beat us that day. I, I didn't realise at the time I gave my team talk at the Poanamu Hotel. But as we walked from the hotel to the bus, and there's a thousand people there all chanting and saying, you will win, or we want you to win, or do well, um, I may as well have forgotten about giving a team to it. They, they were on fire. They were never going to get beaten that day. Right, now what we want you to do is go straight over into the street here. Alright? Okay, Jacob. Getting a nation on side is not a task facing the 2007 All Blacks, thanks to marketing and promotion that are now so much part of any World Cup campaign. These eight-year-olds weighing in at Petoni Recreation Ground ahead of their matches are already committed All Blacks fans. And despite not having been around when the All Blacks have won a World Cup, they're unwavering in their support and conviction as to who's going to win this year's tournament. Behind the scenes, there's been huge advances in technology, from sports science to computer analysis of every aspect of a player's game, and the oppositions too. Even the iconic All Blacks jersey has undergone a transformation. Is new technology the most famous rugby jumper in the world bar number was just got a whole lot better. I give you the all black edition 2007.
This year's jersey is almost half the weight of its 2006 predecessor and was launched in the fashion capital of Paris. If that's not bad enough, the players have had to become clothes horses too. 20 years ago, it would have been an anathema for an All Blacks prop like Carl Heyman to be strutting his stuff on a catwalk in the bowels of Wellington's Westpac Stadium. But now, it's all part of the job. What's under the jersey is probably important as well, but the design things that Adidas are bringing to the jersey, albeit minute, are, um, I guess, factors that could, I suppose, win your games and when you break it down to really little, small things. Probably the fit. Um, the first All Black jersey was quite baggy and... Um, as you can see, these ones are quite fitting. Um, that's probably the big major difference. Obviously, there's the other factors of the different materials that they use over the years to try and make them breathe a bit better and make them more comfortable for players. But, yeah, probably the size has been the main main factor since I've been playing. Being an All Black, you wouldn't have, did you think you'd have to go down the catwalk? That's, uh, was that your first? Yeah, I can't say I've done that before. Yeah, something it's a, bit, be a bit different, I guess, the first year. That's got to be a nightmare for an All Black prop, isn't it? You, you couldn't come up with anything worse, could you, than having to do that? Um, oh, yeah, I suppose it's just part and, part and parcel. Professor Gary Hermanson is a leading sports psychologist, previously based at Massey University in Palmerston North. He played over 100 first-class rugby matches for Wellington and Manawa too, and has worked with the New Zealand Olympic and Commonwealth Games teams, and the New Zealand cricket team too, and believes the motivation for players has changed with the advent of professionalism. Some of the things which were important for us a long time ago around the significance of playing under the silver fern and the flag suddenly change a bit and we've heard a lot of it about you know the jersey and um, it was pretty standard stock it was kind of you know cotton and you kind of there was something about getting that but nowadays you know the jersey you got today is suddenly swished up tomorrow and it's kind of got this fancy collar and, that, and, and whilst the silver fern maybe still be there um, it doesn't have the same meaning and it's a commodity rather than anything else now I think to that extent the pressure goes on therefore with players and um, I think there's a different motivation involved and players have to come to grips with that and so when the when you play you have to give it everything because once you've done with that then what have you got to fall back on so you know there's a, a certain selfishness creeps in as well which is understandable people have to kind of get the best out of what they can do while the time's available and that tends to change the motivation and also the um, commitment sometimes as well the commitment's a different kind of thing it's a commitment to having to keep yourself uh, going and earning the money associated with it whereas in the past it may have been a preparedness to you know have a commitment to get out there and do it for the flag or do it for the nation or whatever that's changed a little bit and um, there are some positives with that as well I think the skill level and the actual um, demands have, have meant we've got a, a better athlete um, but on the, at the same time I think there are some elements of that which are a problem. The problems he's referring to, of course, are the situations All Blacks' Ali Williams and Sitaveni Sivivatu have found themselves in recently. Sivivatu discharged without conviction for assaulting his wife, and Williams sent home in disgrace ahead of the Blues' Super 14 semi-final in South Africa. And they're signs that don't bode well for later in the year. Obviously the preparation's been done well. I think Graham's obviously got a, a good coaching team around him and the players are good in that way as well. But, you know, there are some small... Um, signals that are going on at the moment which make you think, oh, this is what's happening here, you know, the, the players starting to unfold a little bit as well. And now that could be, I mean, sometimes you get rubbish stuff happens before great things happen anyway. And um, so, you know, it's, you wouldn't want to read into that too much. Uh, it could be just that sometimes when the when the focus goes on to the big big occasion, that the preparation can be a problem. When it comes to the players strutting their stuff on the field, there's been a major change too. 
player sizes have increased dramatically. A 2006 study shows that 30 years ago the average weight of a Ford was 100 kilograms. Now it's 110. The bulk of that increase coming in the past 10 years, while the average weight of a back has increased from 80 kilograms to 96. Fitness regimes such as the All Blacks reconditioning program, which saw 22 of the nation's top players sit out the first half of the Super 14, have taken the game to a new level only brought about through professionalism, says Professor Hermanson. The difference I think that's occurred from 87 is that the talent and the skill level has actually increased all the time. I think back to the first World Cup and we went into that World Cup with Jim Blair and his new skill drills, you know, we, we were doing something different. And then lo and behold, you know, within six months after the World Cup, everyone was doing it. And so you get that kind of piggybacking effect along the way. And then other teams, once the professionalisation occurs and money's available, then... Um, Australia and the UK and other things, they start throwing money at it and uh, your player pool increases as well and I think therefore it equalises and the edge that we would have had in the past about being you know, solid, salt of the earth, um, carry around fence posts on your shoulders and you know, front up and do the job, um, gets lost a wee bit in some of this um, professionalisation where you, know, you spend four days a week in the gymnasium or on the field and you train and so once that happens then you have to measure up against it and I think this is where, because the skill level equalises out, then comes down to which is the side that turns up mentally on the day or in a tournament who's able to sustain that mental approach all the way through and I think to that extent um, we do have some fragility around that area that we need to kind of get out of wee bit and do something deliberate about being able to focus on that part of our game rather than leaving it to chance. We've got a long way to go Paula great work in there plenty talking between you two shooters keep rotating around in the circle don't get stuck one behind each other Good feeding in, bounce passes. For netball, success has been a lot more recent. The Silver Ferns won the last World Championships in the Caribbean in 2003 and the Melbourne Commonwealth Games gold medal last year. 20 years ago in Glasgow, they were also world champs under the guidance of Lois Muir. You've got to remember that um, I coached the New Zealand team from um, 74 right through and we had a shocking loss in 83. Uh, lost to Australia in the final, and about four players, nearly five I think, five players, carried across into that next World Championship team and they weren't going to lose. Netball, more so than rugby and cricket, has seen the biggest transformation when it comes to the changes in style of play and playing conditions. But Lois Muir says it's unfair to try and compare the likes of the 1987 team to that of 2007. Never. Conditions are different and the environment's different altogether, so I never compare that. It's on the day how you run the championship and the championships in those days in Glasgow we played outside in drizzly rain and uh, conditions that were pretty doer and uh, stayed in a university hostel lined up for food and got it dished up sort of thing. Life was quite difficult so you had to be resourceful. The training regime, I mean a long time ago in New Zealand teams, you only had to have a bit of natural ability and be in the right place at the right time. That's not possible today. And it's the thinkers on court, it's the decision makers who are coming through and the people whose bodies are really fit and carry through, they're the ones that survive. It's, it's tougher out there, you're being hit more. But while netball has possibly seen the biggest changes on court, off court it hasn't embraced professionalism like rugby and cricket have. A regular member of the Silver Ferns earns around $30,000 a year for playing in the domestic National Bank Cup competition 
and turning out in test matches. We're still an amateur game, although we're assisting players who put that time into representative play. I think uh, the government, the Prime Minister's scholarships have helped tremendously. I think the Academy of Sport backing, making sure people can live in their own environment, work in their own jobs and still get quality training advice, that's really important. I think all of this has added value to the athlete, but they've still got a life afterwards. Lee Gibbs captained the 1987 World Championship side and is now Silver Ferns assistant coach. What happens now with the Silver Ferns is that they have conditioners working with them for 12 months of the year. We didn't have conditions at all. We sort of did our own thing, I guess, and I had a physical education background, so that helped me, and I probably was one of the ones seen as um, pretty staunch in terms of fitness training. Over summer, our programs back in, in the 80s was, while we did train over summer, it wouldn't be to the intensity that the players would be required to now. There are a lot more camps and um, contact with national coaches, so um, players don't have long periods of time where they haven't got that input. And the competition domestically has taken a huge step up, so the National Bank Cup means that players are coming into the season February really netball sharp, whereas for us we were easing into club stuff probably March, April. Do you think, though, the fact that you had to be more self-reliant gave you better understanding of the game or made you stronger as a player than maybe nowadays? No, I don't think so. I think um, what players have access to now is video footage, um, individual feedback in terms of what they can see on video, we did have video, it wasn't that <laughs> back in the dark ages that much, but the technology has enabled to be more focused and more accurate with that kind of feedback. Certainly the coaching styles have changed in that it's a lot more expectation on players contributing to the game plan development and also um, what their yeah, what their knowledge is. The expectation then was that the the coach yeah did the telling I guess and it is the change of style of coaching where everyone is expected to contribute and their thoughts um, are expected in terms of how they might play the game and a lot more interaction one on one with players now than occurred then. Off the court, Lee Gibbsfield's shifts in societal attitudes to women in sport have meant they are more able to continue playing when they take on motherhood rather than having to swap a netball bib for a baby's bib. It's not seen as, as your career ending once you have children. So I guess attitudes have changed. And I think once you have children too, you um, have that ability to, if you like, multitask in a whole range of areas. So that lends itself really well to playing in a team sport. She says one of the biggest challenges facing the Silver Ferns at this year's tournament is playing at home. One of the things that certainly has made World Championships special is that you've hopped on a plane and you've headed offshore. We've got to create um, and look at ways to capture that sort of essence, I guess, of a World Championship being played at home, and, and that's something we're you know, talking through and working through currently. The town on 34. All the fielders inside the ring are on the edge of the circle. Patel lost this away down the ground. Is he going to be caught? He is. The game is over. 
For the New Zealand cricket team, their 2007 World Cup hopes have already been extinguished, once again eliminated at the semi-final stage. Although the 2007 tournament was vastly different to the 1987 version, and for all the wrong reasons. Bob Woolner died some time between... Mr Woolner's death is now being treated by the Jamaica police as a case of murder. Not only Woolner's murder, but the final being played out in the pitch black and the poor organisation throughout the tournament. What was supposed to be the sport's showpiece event was one that the sport will want to forget. Results-wise, from a New Zealand cricket point of view, it was more of the same. Unlike rugby and netball, the New Zealand cricket side has never reached the final of a World Cup, let alone win it. Ahead of this year's tournament, captain Stephen Fleming was adamant 2007 was going to be different. The Black Caps had a diet of one-day games in the 12 months leading into the tournament and had come off a Chapel Hadley series win over reigning world champs Australia. I'm not sure there's much more we could have done, um, apart from getting more runs and getting more wickets. Um, technically, there's not a lot more that we could have done that could have... Um, I don't know, taking more cap, being a little bit more accurate. There's all areas you could say we could have done a lot better as far as planning has gone and, um, and, and what we wanted to do. We're extremely clear in our minds what we wanted to achieve and how to do it. But, um, sometimes up against better players and um, you just fall short. We don't produce the, the world-class players as readily as perhaps Australia do, but I think we do damn well with what we've got and to reach the amount of semi-finals that we have is... Um, I'm going to say it's a pretty proud record. We're disappointed it's not one step further, but uh, just there's a lot of teams that haven't made the semis and we've done it four times. The 2007 side, though, performed better than their 87 counterparts who failed to get past the opening rounds, and the differences don't stop there. Martin Sneddon, who up until recently was the CEO of New Zealand Cricket, was a member of the 87 team, and he says there's no comparison when it comes to preparation. Cricket was a different different game then. It wasn't a professional game. It wasn't even really a semi-professional game for most of us. It was just a almost a pastime. Um, we all had full-time jobs. So, you know, a World Cup would come along and it would have nothing like the build-up uh, that we've had for this one in the West Indies. And... Um, you know, I suppose you start concentrating on it a month or two out from the tournament, and and in '87 that that tournament was in Asia, so uh, I think from memory the tournament was probably played in October, around there. So we were coming out of the winter, uh, we'd had no real preparation for it and uh, whatnot. So I guess looking back on it, it was a bit of a shambles, really. Martin Sneddon says while disappointed at this year's semi-final exit, he feels the team showed it's the third best team on the one-day scene says over the past year there's been a distinct shift in the players' mindset. Instead of being satisfied with good performances, they've learnt they're capable of world-class efforts and now become frustrated when they don't achieve that. There is a tendency, I think, where the expectations were high, uh, particularly as the tournament progressed, you know, and people were starting to get pretty excited about the possibility of us getting into the final and, and winning the thing, that when that didn't happen, that, that there's an overreaction and that, you know, sack the coach, sack the captain. Um, well, the captain himself made a pretty good decision about that. Um, uh, you know, but, but really, chuck out everything you've done and start again. Well, you know, my strong advice to these guys is don't do that. Keep about 80% of what you've been doing because 80% of it's really good and just work on the last 20%, which will make the difference between being good and being really, really good. Match analysis, too, has also become somewhat more scientific since the 87 World Cup in India. I played for New Zealand for 10 years. I hardly ever saw myself bowl. You know, the only time you would see that if there were television highlights or something like that. So you never sat down in front of a, 
a television set and watched a whole lot of you, yourself bowling in practice or in, or in a game. Just that wasn't the way it was done. So, you know, how did we react? Oh, we had a few beers. I mean, that was uh, sort of pretty... Whether we won or lost, we usually had a few beers after the game. Professor Gary Hermanson was part of the Black Cabs management team in the Caribbean and agrees with Fleming's comments about New Zealand having a smaller talent pool to select from than other countries. But he says there's more to it than that. He believes over the next 10 years in sport it will be mental rather than physical development that will make the greatest strides in the sporting world and hopes the 2007 Cricket World Cup and yet another semi-final exit will turn out to be a watershed in the sport here. But he also believes New Zealand sports people in general need to not only beat their competitors if they're to succeed, but also deal with a national psyche that doesn't totally endorse success. He believes that's been a factor in not only the Black Caps failing to get past the semi-finals at the Cricket World Cup, but has also played a part in the All Blacks failing to win another World Cup. We point out the criticisms, we make uh, uh, the emphasis on what's wrong and, and how it would be done better and things of that sort. And that, that's represented, I think, in media, but also it's part of our parenting styles and whatever. And uh, I think from that point of view, we've got a few things to learn about how to motivate people for desire, you know, the desire to do well, the desire to, to accomplish, the desire to finish the job. And I think there's a bit of a tendency that our patterns tend to be more apprehension about not getting it right, not advancing, uh, about failing. And when that happens, of course, you get into a negative mindset and it's so easy to have that happen. If you take most of our national sports, we can do well on our day. But when there's a kind of a tournament play and we have to sustain that over a period of time and we have to draw on, a, on our patterns of motivation and our patterns of being able to see ourselves as being up to the task, then I think there, there is a part of a tendency to resort to old, traditional, somewhat negative and somewhat cautious mindsets. And I think the other side of it, which is you know, maybe interesting, is that um, we talk about tall poppy in New Zealand. And I think that's pretty evident. It's there. You know, we, don't, we, we need to be champions, but if we are champions, we need to be inconspicuous and humble. And a lot of our sport, you know, really important sports people are very humble people. You know, if you go to Edmund Hillary and Sarah Ulmer and Stacey Jones and people like that in our cricketing sense, you know, people like Stephen Fleming and that, they are in fact humble people. But sometimes that humility can actually uh, get in the way a bit and people want more of them. But if you start getting above your station, you get dumped on a little bit. So with some of our sports people as well, Ironically, there's a little bit of a fear of success as well, that if I, if I get successful then I expose myself to the potential of having to be taken down a bit, and that's a shame because I think it does undermine some of the talent and abilities we have as, as a nation. In sporting parlance, it's been a long time between drinks since New Zealand was on top of the sporting world, but if the All Blacks and the Silver Ferns of 2007 can repeat the efforts of 87, they'll be the toast of the sporting public and secure their place in New Zealand's sporting history.